looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Reels, a podcast for hardcore cinephiles. We tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we're going to be tackling trucks and country music and mustaches and tight jeans and coarse beer and some crazy fucking stuntmen who used to do a lot of crazy things for probably far too little money. But we're going to talk about the career of the great Hal Needham stuntman turned choreographer turned second unit director turned massive blockbuster filmmaker he's just got an absolutely remarkable career and this is i think the first episode we've ever done about the art form of doing stunts in movies and for this episode we probably got the biggest strongest fan of wrong real moose matson if you're if you follow us on twitter you've seen me post pictures of him in the past but he's got guns the size of fucking pythons and he's a hal needham fanatic but moose uh, I guess you are a fairly recent addition to our Wrong Real community, but welcome to Wrong Real for the very first time. Thank you very much, James. Absolutely a pleasure to be here. I can't believe I'm here. It's ridiculous. Well, I'm trying to think of when we started interacting, because I remember we were doing a live stream maybe last year, and like, oh my God, like all these people are uh, are so nice, and then you ended up ordering, or I can't remember if you ordered a Wrong Real shirt or if I sent you one, but you posted a picture on Twitter. I was like, God damn, dude, like, how fucking big are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that was the day that I went and saw... Rambo, Last Blood, and I came back and gave her a big two thumbs up. Nice, yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed Rambo, Last Blood as well, and I'll never forget at the end of that movie, swapping high fives with total strangers, we were all just freaking out, there's this dude beside me <laughs> who just, I mean, he was just losing his mind, but as we were watching, like, the heart get carved out and so on and so forth, I was like, holy shit, like, this is like maybe the scariest horror movie of the year, but it's, in theory, an action movie starring Sly Stallone. But that last 30, 40 minutes was, I think, just shy of the woods sequence from the original First Blood. Yeah, and in those other movies, it was uh, he was just trying to stay alive, protect himself. And in this one, things changed. It was revenge, which means uh, he could just go off on these people. And he did. Yeah. Now, Sly Stallone is incredible what he's been able to do late in his career. I mean, I can remember like in the late 90s, early 2000s, where he was starting to be regarded by some as kind of a joke, and he was going off and doing films in Europe that, or doing films that would get like a, not even much of a release here in America, things like mm-hmm. Get Carter and Drive. And I was like, damn, Sly's kind of yeah. falling on hard times. But then when he made Rambo, like in 06 or 07, right around, that was like the beginning of his massive comeback. And then he had The Expendables, and then like the Rocky movie started coming back. And all of a sudden, he was doing Creed and all this other stuff. I was like, whoa, like Sly Stallone is like 
in a lot of ways, as big as he's ever been. And I'm thrilled beyond words. And I love watching Arnold and Sly talking shit back and forth on Twitter, making fun <laughs> of each other's props and the size of their weapons and things like yeah. that. But it's just great seeing these two legends who are in their 70s now still rooting for each other every step of the way. Oh, it's funny back in the day, you know, a long time ago that people would joke about, oh, it's Rocky 99 or Rocky uh, 111 or something like that. But uh, we're still watching them. Absolutely. Still enjoying them. Well, they found the perfect way to pivot and to keep it relevant and keep it going. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, as long as Sly's walking this earth, I'll keep showing up <laughs> to watch him yeah, p- yeah. play in any of these parts. And I know they're doing an Expendables 4. So he's, and also people always overlook just how many movies that he wrote and directed. As just, if you were to look at his career just as a screenwriter and just as a director, like, oh my God, like he's had a really successful career in its own right. But he also mm. happened to be this massive movie star along the way. So nothing but a uh, high fives to sliced alone but today we're gonna to be talking about Hal Needham who might have wanted in his own way to be more like his best friend and roommate Burt Reynolds who obviously at one point was the highest paid movie star in the world but for whatever reason it didn't quite work out for him as a performer but it all worked out in the end because what people don't might not know that in uh, the year that Star Wars was the highest grossing movie in North America <laughs> the number two highest grossing movie that year was directed by Hal Needham. His directorial debut was the second highest grossing film of the year. And for my money, still one of the most, just one of the pound for pound best entertaining movies ever made, Smoking the Bandit. Yeah, that's an amazing directorial debut. Yeah, as good as any as you <laughs> care to mention. And even Tarantino says that it's the best movie about the South that he's ever seen, because not only is it a movie that takes place in the South, it's made by Southerners with a Southern audience in mind, which is pretty rare. Usually you get Hollywood movies about the South that feel more like Hollywood than the actual South, whereas Smoking the Bandit, it just it lives and breathes the South in every way, shape, or form. But before we get into his movies that he directed, let's talk a little bit about how Needham, just the man, where he came from, and how he mm-hmm. got to this point where he was basically reinventing the stunt industry. So we can we can start wherever you like, right. but maybe the best place is uh, before he ever stepped in front of a camera or threw himself down a pair of stairs or launched a car across a bridge. Where the hell did Hal Needham come from, and how did he become such a physical specimen? Uh, Hal Needham, what was it, uh, 1931 in uh, the hills of Arkansas during the, uh, during the Great Depression. That's where it came from. Gotcha. Son of a... Son of a sharecropper. And uh, what was it? Uh, saw that documentary, The Bandit, uh, in there. That one guy asked him, uh, did you have any hobbies when you were a kid? And he's like, boy, you have no idea what the life of a sharecropper is like. Yeah, there's no time so for hobbies. Uh, you're, you're, you're working, you're putting food on the table, then you're waking up and you're doing it again. Uh, yeah, but it's that, incredible. It's like, but work. But that he would develop this larger-than-life personality because while he came from humble beginnings, when you watch him in interviews or he's making cameos in movies, he's got all the natural charisma of a movie star, mm-hmm. but he probably just didn't have the acting chops of someone like Burt Reynolds. But it's incredible just ha- – I mean, even in um, – what was that made-for-TV movie that you sent me from 1979 um, – Death car on the freeway. Exactly. He pops up in that, teaching the, the 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 star how to drive, and he's incredible. He does a really good job. So his natural charm just comes off of him in waves, and it's just amazing that he was working as a like as a tree topper and then as a billboard model for mm-hmm. Viceroy cigarettes, and you know obviously was a paratrooper <laughs> in the Korean War, and then slowly but surely he just made his way into being a stuntman. And for ten years, he was the highest paid stuntman in the world. Yeah, it was it was amazing. All the 
all the things that he did in his life, uh, like I said earlier, were stepping stones that uh, he every step he took contributed to the next one. And, uh, you know, he had a, a really uh, difficult uh, life in the beginning. It was very hard work and uh, as a child. And that's what uh, I think that's what stayed with him. He, he was a hard worker all his life. Well, there are a lot of people out there who work hard. But it's another thing to work hard when you are suffering from 56 broken bones or breaking your back <laughs> twice or puncturing <laughs> lungs and knocking out your teeth. Like there are a lot of people who get up and they drive a bus every day and it sucks and it's hard work. And it just, yeah. it, but at least they're physically roughly kind of still in one piece. How neat them. Yeah. <laughs> I can't up, tell you. Yeah. In casts and keep working. I can't tell you what was going on in his head that made him say, I'm going to do that again. Yeah. I was just. Incredible that that what he put his body through, and then the next day uh, I'm going to go back and do it again. Absolutely, and even long after he retired, he was still like you could tell like fighting the itch. Like anytime like he could get a chance to pop in and do a stunt like in Hopper or whatever, he would take that opportunity to do so. But for people out there who were unaware of his laundry list of credits, he worked on four thousand five hundred episodes of television, which is a lot. And he appeared Amazing. as a stuntman, and uh, as a stuntman coordinator, second unit director and director in 310 feature films. So once again, Crazy. not not afraid of hard work. There's so many people out there who sit around, you know, spending years trying to make their personal film, but he just believed in getting up, and going to work, and making mm -hmm. these movies happen. And it, you can you can feel like his personality at play in his three films. While he might claim he doesn't put messages oh, yeah. in his movies and he just wants to make people laugh and show them a good time and give them some good action, but I feel like the three movies we're going to talk about today reflect his reflect his personalities in a lot of ways. Like they say, every work of fiction is a confession to a degree, and I feel like these three movies are very confessional in terms of who this guy was. Oh yeah, uh, every every one of them has that 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 feel. He's got that is that southern feel, that feel from where he comes from. And, uh, and it's just amazing to watch all of them. Well, do you have any favorite stories from his time as a, a roommate with Burt Reynolds? Because Burt Reynolds, apparently, <laughs> uh, all, all I know is that he had a thing for, like, for tile, and he thought that tile was really cool, and so he lived in this home <laughs> that was like covered in tile. But the, the fact that they lived together for 11 years while making all these movies is just bananas. But um, how did, I guess, how did Burt Reynolds and Hal Needham initially get hooked up? Because obviously Hal Needham was doubling for Burt for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was crazy. There was, a, there was a period in time, uh, what was it, uh, where they were making the movie The Alamo, and uh, he wasn't familiar with the stunt coordinator, or the stunt coordinator wasn't familiar with him. So uh, he went to see about getting a job on the Alamo, and they're like, the guy was like, I, I don't know you. I'd like to work with people I know. So like 26 stuntmen from that area where they were all living all went off to this movie, and he found himself in Hollywood with hardly any stuntmen around. So he got work like crazy. Gotcha. And uh, – was it? There was a, a point in time uh, where he he did like five different shows in one day. He was over here working on uh, uh, Laramie, and then uh, going over to Have Gun with Travel and Gunslinger, all, all this stuff. And it was during that period of time where he ended up getting a call to be on uh, Riverboat. He shows up, and they put him in the wardrobe, and he's like, "Who am I doubling?" And he's like, uh, "Go down to the set and find somebody dressed like you." And he goes down the set and. It's Burt Reynolds. I'm trying to, so when was Burt Reynolds? What was his big 
turning point to becoming such a, a marquee actor because like I would I, I know which movies of his that yeah. I like, but when did the box office start to translate? Because Deliverance is probably the earliest one I can think of where he's featured front and center. But I'm right. looking at his INDB now. I mean, I really like uh, his film uh, Navajo Joe by Sergio Corbucci, but something tells me that was a super obscure movie. I have no numbers to back that up, but most spaghetti westerns were pretty small films back then in 1966, uh, apart from obviously like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly and things like that, which was a massive hit. But if I'm looking through his credits right now, I mean, Shark from 1969 is a really obscure movie. It seems like Deliverance in 1972 is the first time where it's, he has like a really big role. And of course, the same yeah. year, he's in Woody Allen's Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex, But We're Afraid to Ask, where he's like, we need more erection, we need more erection. But then obviously, then it's the following <laughs> year where he's got White Lightning and the longest, and the, then followed by The Longest Yard. So maybe it was like 73, 74, where he really started to pop. I think the first time... I remember seeing him was on something like The Longest Yard. And that was, of course, after you know, White Lightning and Deliverance. But yeah, I think around the, the time of Deliverance, you know, he really, he, he did an incredible job in that movie. I mean, that was absolutely A+. Plus. And after that, he just kept going. Yeah, I mean, you have like Silent Movie with Mel Brooks in 1976, Gator in 1976, Nickelodeon, which was a huge bomb, the Peter, but he kept trying to be an actor. But it's funny how Smokey and the Bandit you get the sense when he made it that he'd already been a star for a long time, but he hadn't really had right. these giant, massive hits. But I love how people talk about how like Burt Reynolds, he was such a, like a, a natural performer and how he did everything without effort. And there's, I saw this great interview where he was talking about how he spent 20 years practicing to make things look effortless, like appearing effortless right. and appearing casual on, on film is actually incredibly hard work. Like it might appear on the surface of the water that he's totally still, but beneath the water he's kicking and thrashing. Like there's a lot of technique to seeming cool. Yeah, definitely. Well, what's cool about Needham at this time is how he's switching from doing horse stunts to more car stunts because obviously westerns in the 50s and 60s were still huge, but by the 70s they're starting to phase out, but you're getting just the great heyday of cars and cinema, and it seems like he was perfectly positioned for this transition, and he seems to have approached the whole industry and a very, with like a lot of scientific rigor. Like he wasn't just some dumbass who liked to get up on a horse and let it throw him off and see what was going to happen. He was a, like a technological innovator. Like when he yeah. did the boat stunt in Gator, he set the fucking world record for a boat stunt. And then he, uh, he jumped a rocket powered pickup truck across a canal for a GM commercial and was the first human being ever to test the car airbag. So he really was uh, trying to explore the frontier and all these things that are part of like the industry norms now, he played a large role in inventing like the air ram and the airbag and the air cannon turnover, mm -hmm. the nitrogen ratchet, the jerk-off ratchet, which sounds a little slutty, but uh, it's something you do with <laughs> cars. And then the shot maker camera car to make stunts safer. And so you, you see stunts becoming safer, but at the same time, much more exciting and much more interesting. And also, he brought a lot of ladies in on the action as well. He had a lot of female stunt girls who were doing all kinds of things, you know, doubling for Sally Fields and people like that. So he, I feel like he reinvented the industry and kind of defined it throughout the entire 70s. Please. No. I know in the past I may have done you wrong. Right? Right. However... In the future, Cletus, I will never, ever do you wrong again. Right? Right. Yeah. Now, we have a big chance, a big chance to make a run for some big bucks. 80,000 of them. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. 
What are we gonna do? Kidnap the Pope or something? How'd you guess? <laughs> no. We're just gonna run over to Texarkana and pick up 400 cases of Coors. And bring it back in 28 hours. <laughs> Whoa! I got a plan for you. That's called bootlegging and that's against the law. Well, who gives a turkey? When the snowman and the bandit are running the booze. No Whoa. one can stop us. Hold it. They're right there. They ain't gonna be no more snowman and bandit. You understand any why? Well, because I've got to go in the morning to Kanye's and pick up a load of manure. Shitty job. Can I ask you a question? Sure, ask me. What the hell do we want to go to Texas for and haul beer back here? What is that? For the good old American life. For the money, for the glory, and for the fun. Mostly for the money. Now, you know what we're going to do when we get the money? Hmm? What? We're going to buy a new rig. You're crazy, you know that? Yeah. You know that? <laughs> yes. Anyway, how much money did you say it was? Eighty-eight thousand dollars. Eighty thousand dollars. Mm. Why not? Now, Bo, I'm telling you, right here ain't gonna be no problem. Well, I can see he's gonna be a major asset. And besides, and he's one hellacious watchdog. <laughs> well, let's get going. Oh, whoa, uh, hold a minute. What? I, I got a question. Question? Sure. Sit right there, Fred. You mean to tell me we're gonna drive from here? to Texarkana, Texas, and back to here in 28 hours. It's only 900 miles there, 900 miles back. Well, for your information, that ain't never been done, not no rig. That's because you and I ain't never done it in no rig. You gotta stop thinking so negative, son. Of course we can make it. We ain't never not made it yet, have we? Well, no. You see? Yeah. Yeah, I see. I see, all right. I see our ass in a swing if we get caught. That's what I see. So let's start switching gears into Smokey and the Bandit because my understanding is that they were working together on Gator when yeah. Hal Needham started doing a little screenwriting and kind of dabbling and realizing that he really wanted like he was never going to be Burt Reynolds, so he had to do he had to make a big play to switch gears in his career. So talk talk to us a little bit about the, the kind of the early um, I guess the uh, some of the initial rumblings of Smokey and the Bandit. Yeah, uh, shooting Gator. They had that, uh, the, the driver captain had come to him and said, Hey, I got some Coors beer that we brought over from uh, California. I put it in your, your fridge. And, uh, he kept finding that they were turning up missing and, uh, day after day. So he had a little stakeout and he found that, uh, the cleaning lady was stealing the beer <laughs> and, uh, cause you could get, what was it? You could get, uh, 20 bucks for a six pack of Coors beer. And, uh, Which he thought, sounds wow. overpriced even today. Like I would, yeah. I would, I'd rather pay someone to punch me in the face <laughs> for twenty bucks <laughs> than a six pack of Coors. Like I mean, I drank a shitload of Coors back in high school, but uh, those days are in the past. So I, I, I don't know if Coors is like a highlight of beers or is it like a like a it's, bad beer? It's the silver bullet, man. No, like my little my little sister used to fucking love Coors, and whenever I I'm ten years or older, whenever I'd go buy beer for her, she'd be like, get us Coors Light. She absolutely loved and adored it. But apparently, part of it also had to do with the fact that it wasn't the beer wasn't being pasteurized, so it had to be constantly refrigerated, so it made it difficult right. to distribute. But it essentially was almost kind of bootlegging to transport it across certain state lines, and slowly but surely they realized that bootlegging cores would make a good plot line for a movie. And exactly. in terms of like beer that I would like to drink, it ranks very low, but in terms of plots for a movie, it's so simple and so cool, but great movies usually more often than not are simple. Like it's their, their visual storytelling. And the plot of this movie is we're going to drive to pick up some cores. We're going to turn around and we're going to bring it back. And it's, it's basically like 
Mad Max Ferry Road, where they drive way out to the fucking desert, they turn around, and they come back. And that's all you need for a riveting movie if you fill it with great characters and great stunts and great music, yeah, etc. Yeah. Well, that was his thing. He was like, as far as movies go, he was like, uh, his style was, you know, plenty of action, lots of speed, 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 and uh, a little bit of comedy. And that's what people want to see. And that, that, that will entertain people. But, I mean, writing comedy is such a tricky thing. And the fact that Hal Needham could – I mean, obviously, he has help with a couple of different screenwriters. you got Hal Needham. you got Robert L. Levy, <laughs> James Lee Barrett, Charles Shire, and Alan Mandel. But Hal Needham, he came with the story. And I think this is the strongest story that he ever worked with as a director. I mean, Cannibal Run has that kind of elegant simplicity as well in terms of just a, a mm-hmm. straightforward plot. But there's something about the dialogue in Smoking the Bandit where it just really soars. It's one of the things where there's so many different, like a lot of different ingredients go into making a great movie from great tunes to great performances to certain action set pieces. And this is one of those movies where every ingredient that they decided to stir into the soup really worked well. Like Sally Field's incredible. And then, of course, Mm -hmm. I mean, you got Fred, the fucking Basset Hound, who's incredible. (laughs) Jackie Gleason, like everything about this movie works. And that's such such a rare thing. It is amazing. Everything in this movie works. As, when it comes to the writing, now, you know, he wrote it. Uh, and uh, what was it? In between takes and other films, he was over there writing it. People were like, what are you writing? What are you doing, Hal? And he's like, I'm writing a story. And, uh, you know, he'd get this big thing of uh, papers together and he takes it home to his roomie, uh, Bert. And he says, read this. And uh, Bert, of course, is, says, you know, it's the worst dialogue I've ever read in my entire life. But it's a, it's a good idea. So if you take it and uh, you get uh, somebody, uh, like a writer, to go ahead and polish it up and you can get somebody to approve that, you know, let you direct it, I'll star in it. Worlds turn on these kinds of moments. And I know, obviously, Burt was enough of a star where, like, uh, I think the budget was initially $4.3 million, but then it got – Or five, yeah, then it got dropped down to 4.3. But a quarter of that budget was going to go to Burt. But Burt was lending his name and his star power to this, so it was a, a perfect storm for both of them. Both of them, because I mean, Hal Needham's getting a chance to transition from second unit director and stunt choreographer to being in the director's chair. But right. he had—it wasn't like he was a completely unknown quantity. I mean, Robert Aldrich, who's one of the best directors from that period, he was letting Hal Needham shoot his second unit, and these weren't stunts; mm-hmm. these were just second unit photography. It was, these were action scenes. And as Tarantino said, like Robert Aldrich knew how to fucking shoot action. Robert Aldrich was a hell of a director in his own right, but he had enormous respect for what Hal Needham could bring to the table. And just mm-hmm. his, it seemed like he was an expert at planning in advance. Like with uh, Little Big Man, the um, the Arthur Penn movie, apparently Hal Needham came up with the idea. He said, "Look, like we can do a lot of crazy stunts and we can fall off, and you can shoot all sorts of." chaos and insanity but if you give us a couple months in advance we can train the horses to do special stunts and then we'll give you something even more special and so that ability to plan stunts months in advance to get the cars and the stuntmen and the and the animals prepared is what gives you these next level results and so i feel like life is all about opportunity meet and preparation and Hal Needham, yeah. like you said, he he had been born in, in 1931, so here he was, 46 years old. His whole life was leading up to this point, and he was fucking ready to go. Yeah, uh, when he first got uh, before he was a stuntman, you know, he he well, not, he did a couple stunts, but then uh, during that period of time, he uh, he realized that the in Hollywood, the the stunt community was controlled by about you know like about a dozen stunt coordinators 
or stunt bosses. And if uh, they didn't know you, you didn't get to work. So he could have went back to climbing trees and in a tree trimming. <laughs> but instead, he was like, you know what? I'm going to get a uh, screen extras card, you know, guild. And uh, so he got into SEG and became an extra. And he was like, if I'm an extra, I'll be there on the set. And I can look at everything. I can absorb everything. And I can talk to the stuntmen and uh, get into it that way. So right from the right, right from the beginning, you know, he's learning everything he can and absorbing everything he can from the from being on set. Well, did you see uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood this past year? <laughs> no, I have not, and well, I didn't want it to. I didn't want it to taint anything that I was going to read. Well, no, the, or... the, no worries. But the reason I ask is because in that movie, you've got a star and a stuntman where they're not roommates, but they're friends. And I feel like the story of Smoking the Bandit would be the happy oh, yeah. ending if you take like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood ends in 1969 where Rick Dalton's career is very much in doubt. Cliff, Cliff Booth's career is very much in doubt. You don't quite know what the future holds for either of these guys. But if Tarantino were to make a sequel, you know, 10 years from now when they're considerably older, I feel like this is the movie that Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton could have possibly made. <laughs> Although Cliff Booth yeah. probably would never be able to direct a movie because he's just a fucking, he's a mess. I mean, he's like kicks ass and fights and that sort of thing. But I feel like because of Tarantino's love and affection for the stunt community, apparently that's a big right. part of like his relationship with Kurt Russell is they sit around the set, just swapping stories about Kurt Russell's early days doing TV and doing stunts and that sort of thing. And they just have this great reverence and fondness for stuntmen. Hence the character of stuntman Mike and, uh, and death proof. I, I've been waiting for after we're done with this podcast to watch that movie. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, I can't scared. wait to it was, it was watch it. my favorite it. movie of last year, and it's, it's not necessarily everybody's cup of tea because it's not super plot-driven, but for movie freaks, people who love like a, like love songs to stunt people and forgotten cult classics and that sort of thing, it absolutely is uh, you know ri- riveting to watch. Well, but uh, I don't want to turn this into an episode about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because I'll, I'll very easily get yeah. sidetracked. <laughs> so let's start cracking open this movie. We've already talked about a bit about the script, but we haven't really mentioned the dialogue yet. And the dialogue for me... It's so subtle, but goddamn, it fucking just makes me scream and laughter. Just little things like when they first see the 400 cases of Coors, and they're like, redneck heaven. They almost throw the lines away a lot of times. Or like when Sally Field asks, um, mm-hmm. you know, would a cop taking a leak on the side of the road interest you? He's like, yes, it would. He's taking a 10-100. <laughs> and just, just little lines like that. And, uh, you know, or he, the way he says, like, hey, there, Smokey, when the first time he sees a cop in the movie... And then, of course, you got Jackie Gleason like just screaming these lines, oftentimes improvising them, saying, like, my name is Smokey Bear, and I'm tail-grabbing your ass right now. Like, <laughs> it's just bananas. And, you know, so I think, I think the dialogue is as, any, as good as any comedy from, like, the 1940s. It's just written in a much more laid-back kind of southern drawl. I, I, don't, I don't understand how any of this really happened because well, he turned it over to James Lee Barrett, uh, a friend of his who had written Bandolero and Undefeated and a couple others and uh, had him polish up his script. But when it comes to the movie, when when Bert had talked to Sally Field about the movie and she asked about the script, he's like, there's no script. Uh, there's it's it's pretty much open. You can yeah, she said uh, half the stuff was improv. And if you if you look into Jackie Gleason, uh, he had asked Hal about the, the script and Hal's like nothing's set in stone. And he looked good. So he took that to heart. And so about 90% of anything that 
uh, Jackie Gleason says he just came up with. I mean, the movie's really good without him, but man, every great hero needs a great antagonist, and god damn, he just about steals every single scene. Like, so much so that I heard that after they did their one scene together, Burt Reynolds, and granted, it's hard to know what to separate fact from legends and but the, the legend yeah. is that Burt Reynolds said, I don't want to do any more scenes with Jackie Gleason face to face because Jackie Gleason was just destroying him in that scene about the he's Diablo sandwich. He's, he's, he's so good. good. Yeah, he's so much personality. Have you ever had a Diablo sandwich? <laughs> no, but I've had a Dr. Pepper. Gotcha. Yeah, I looked up that the Diablo. I was like, what the hell? I was like, it sounds delicious. But I was like, what the fuck is a Diablo sandwich? And the uh, the recipe is, hang on, I got it written down. Yeah, I've got the, I got, all right, here it is. So he, the recipe uh, is like a sloppy joe, but spicier. They're regional differences, but it's usually made like a sloppy joe with ground beef. The sloppy joe spices are replaced with taco spices, and the recipe might include hot sauce, canned corn, and diced tomato. And some places, jalapeno wow. peppers are added as well. It's usually served on a hamburger bun. So, but in that scene, when he's, you know, he's spitting food and he's getting like grease down his tie, and I love how <sighs> Burns like dipping the napkin in the Dr. Pepper and like washing it off. Oh, much obliged. But their chemistry is incredible. It's a shame that Burt Reynolds, if, if yeah. it is in fact true, that he said no more scenes, at least face to face. Yeah, yeah. He 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 was a big he's a big star, and he's a uh, he's a little overwhelming. Yeah. To to Burt. Yeah. Well, what do you what? How do you think the movie would have been if Jerry Reed had played the bandit as initially planned? Yeah, that uh, that is interesting. It would uh, it would certainly be in a lot of case in a lot of ways it'd be the same movie, but it, there's certainly a different dynamic. Well, Jerry Reed is sublime in this, and he makes me scream with laughter and just like talking about Fred. Oh, yeah. Fred's starting to look a little thin in the skin, and just, <laughs> he's so good. But I do think he's a supporting player. I mean, obviously, he's a massive mm -hmm. country and western singer, and the song that he cooked up for this movie. It's one of the greatest songs, like theme songs to any movie ever recorded. But I think Burt Reynolds is a movie star. Jerry Reed is a character actor. And I think you really needed a movie star to hold this movie together. Yeah. And yeah, Burt Reynolds was born yeah. to play to play the bandit. Yeah, Jerry Reed has this wonderful look about him. I, he, you look at him in the, uh, in the semi after he hit, has the bar fight, and he's about to run over those bikes. And his the gleam in his eye and his huge smile just pops up as he runs him over. It's just it's, it's interesting to look at. I really like him. Yeah, he's got a, a lot of his face has got all these interesting kind of contours and details. <laughs> but they're the chemistry between the two of them early on. They're like, well, I'll be Bandit One and you'll be uh, Bandit Two. And they're like, you know, and they're talking Bandit about two. like <laughs> like their, their code language and how they're gonna go. Like when we're going for the, the three, we're really going to five, and we're going to seven, we're really going to nine, and like. And it just their, their chemistry is just so damn good. But every time a new character enters the movie, it just it enriches the whole thing. Like initially, just having Jerry Reed and Burt Reynolds is enough. And then when Sally Field joins, she's incredible, and that's an, an incredible addition. And then of course you get Jackie Gleason in there. So suddenly you've got four incredible leading characters, and so you're never bored. Like no matter who you're spending time with, you're always riveted every step of the way. But quick note about Jerry Reed and how Needham asked him to write the theme song. It took him only a couple of hours, and he wrote Eastbound and Down, and he showed up and played it on an acoustic guitar to Hal Needham, and he stopped him and said, uh, and apparently Jerry Reed was worried that Hal Needham wasn't liking it, and he said, if you change one note, I'll kill you. <laughs> and so, <laughs> that was it. The song was etched in stone from that point on. And what was interesting is uh, after the movie was done, Hal went off to do something else, and then he comes back, and they called him up and said, hey, we, we made a couple changes. We want you to check it out. And uh, they had added in a whole bunch of uh, brass 
music yeah I to uh this. yeah <laughs> the song, he's like take that shit out <laughs> well this is a classic example where hal needham really knew who this movie was for because it's yeah. got an affection for the south that people from new york and la just will never understand because they just haven't they haven't spent time there and the idea of removing the score and putting in an orchestral score and it's just and case in point then they tried to open the movie in new york and it was a disaster the movie fell in its face and Hal Needham's like, no, like we need to open this in like towns that are like twenty thousand people. Like that—that's mm-hmm. who this this movie is for. Simple rural folks. This is not for. And if you look at the reviews for the film, they are ruinous. They're scathing. Like all the critics were yeah. like, oh, this is nothing that we've never seen before. Blah blah blah. Just talking. They just they just straight up did not get it in any way, shape, or form. But Hal Needham luckily stuck to his guns and knew precisely who this movie was made for. And while Star Wars was dominating all the cities, like every single drive-in theater in the fucking country was playing Smoking the Bandit. And like you like watch interviews with a lot of people to this day, a lot of like country western stars, and say, oh yeah, I've seen Smoking the Bandit. Like. 200 times like it just became yeah. <laughs> a cultural touchstone for a lot of people because they're no they're not a lot of movies that serve this audience i'm a big believer in making movies for every audience that's out there and yeah. underserved audiences are always these huge market opportunities like when you see a movie like downton abbey suddenly like exploding and opening with these giant numbers it's because there are a lot of little old ladies out there who are craving you know more scenes of maggie smith talking <laughs> about Preparing for a party, like that's an underserved audience, and Smoking the Bandit, once again, yeah. underserved audience. Oh, definitely, definitely. Going back to watch this movie again, I had forgotten a lot of that earlier stuff. I just seemed to remember all of the, uh, all of the scenes, you know, racing down the road, and all the scenes with, uh, with Jackie Gleason. So it was great to rewatch this and see the, you know, why they were going, and. Uh, and everything there, it, I had I sort of lost all that, so it was great watching that again. And I, I they had come to the, uh, uh, what was it? He was a he was a legend at racing trucks himself, and uh, he was there for people to look at and everything. And and I had forgotten all about that. Yeah, stuff. he's just lying like in a in a hammock, just sleeping, and people are paying <laughs> just to have the opportunity to look at him. <laughs> and then later on in the movie, and Sally Fields like, well, like, well, what do you? What is? He says, I just go from place to place, do what I do best. And she's like, what's that? And he says, show off. He's he's show a show off. off. That's a, that's what he does. But he's a very laid back show off. But like when he goes to recruit Snowman, I love their kids just all over the place. And he makes like a joke to his wife about starting a new race. And you know, Snowman, he's dead asleep and he gets roused from his slumber to go then and there to spend 28 hours on this fucking drive like a friend, a friend of mine showed up at my door and woke my ass up and said we're about to drive 900 miles like get in the car and let's go i'd be like go fuck yourself but i love how snowman's totally game and they just they just immediately dive right into it well once he uh mentioned the money yeah that was uh that was incentive enough to get him up yeah, well, I just feel like the screenplay for this movie is probably a thousand times better than it has any right to be. And it's not just the little kind of cool, tough guy-like lines. I mean, there's like some genuine humor in there. Like when Sally Field's in the car and he's, uh, she mentions how she's a professional. He's like, well, in that case, you shouldn't be dressed in white. And she's like, dancer. And like, I know that Burt Reynolds <laughs> and Sally Field had a bit of a romantic relationship going on at the time. And it shows in the movie. Yeah, and it does. the movie actually finds like this unexpected romantic side later on in the movie when snowman goes to get like refill up with gas it gives the movie this perfect seventh inning stretch where it gets to slow down for a second and they're not having to race around 
And he and Sally, they just drive off and you get this great little musical interlude and he's talking, it gives the audience like a chance to catch their breath, cleanse their palate. And she asked him like, when do you ever take your hat off for anything? And he's like, oh, I take it off for one thing. And she's like, take your hat off. And I think this movie is surprisingly affecting in a lot of ways that a lot of people are just so happy to disregard this movie or be condescending about it because I think it's just a movie about truck drivers. But there's a hell of a lot more going on. It's amazing. They, uh, you know, Hal tell you that uh, when you watch the two of them together, and uh, you 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 can't help but see them falling in love, and for real. Yeah, hundred percent. Especially in, in that scene. Yeah, she's so. You never think of Sally Field as being this great, like sex object, but in this movie, that's what they were worried about. She's too. totally a sex uh, object in this. So she's like, I mean, and she really sells it. Like when Snowman's like, "Nice ass," and she turns around, and she's like, "Thanks a lot." Like I love how she she's right on the same wavelength with the rest of the fellas. Well, Sally had uh, done, um, Sybil, and uh, people were talking about how incredible she was in that in that movie. But some people were saying, "Yeah, but she was." kind of ugly uh and that's what she was hearing and she was after she had talked to bert about being in this movie she thought oh you know what this might be a turnaround for me and uh, people won't see me like that anymore and uh what was it uh bert had said that you know some people didn't think she was sexy enough and uh he would he quoted in saying that uh Underneath that uh, nun's habit, she was dangerously sexy. Yeah, I, that's, a, that's a good line. And I could not agree more. Like early on, after he picks her up, she's uh, leaning back over the seat in the car. And yeah. the camera is lingering on her ass. We're wearing these tight jeans. Everybody's wearing tight I mean, if you want to know what Burt Reynolds' dick looks like, you can see it like every time he's walking around because everybody's jeans are so fucking tight in this movie. But Sally Field's ass looks incredible. You're like, whoa, I just... I, yeah. When I was a little kid, I always thought of her in a kind of a maternal fashion. But now that I'm a dirty old man at age 43, I'm able to appreciate her in an entirely new light. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, there's all sorts of good sexual humor in this, like the hookers who work in that trailer on the side of the road, and they're really good at like distracting <laughs> cops. And they're like total, like they're almost like elderly prostitutes in a lot of ways but i love how they have this great relationship with uh with bandit and he's like oh he's like oh, he's like i'll catch you on the flip side i'm too pooped to pop and i was like whoa i'm too pooped to pop that's a line i'm going to use because sometimes you know when you're a teenager you're never too pooped to pop but when you're get, get a little older you 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 might be so uh like just there's so many great little phrases like that scattered throughout the flick i should have wrote down more uh more cb talk because uh, i can't remember what they called those ladies on the side of the road yeah, I oh I yeah, I can't remember either. But yeah, but the CB talk. Do you remember CB talk all the way? Because I can remember briefly in the early eighties when I was a kid. Yeah. A friend of mine's mom had a CB radio in her car, and she loved getting on and talking shit like she was a character out of Convoy, and was like her, I think her handle was Big Duck or something like that. But it was, and she would almost <laughs> like put on like a fake accent. But do you what? How much do you remember of CB culture back in the day? My dad had a CB in his van, but I don't remember him ever getting on it and you know saying anything fun like that so he wasn't like kurt russell and uh, big trouble in little china just telling, no, no. <laughs> telling stories on a dark and stormy night <laughs> nothing like that nothing like that at all but if you think about it that's kind of in a weird way like podcasting before podcasting because you if yeah. you wanted to just get on your cb radio and just rant people could tune in or tune out as as much or as little as they liked 
And I say, I, I imagine that for some of these guys on certain routes, they probably had like a little audience, but I, I don't, I mean, I, once again, I was just too goddamn little for most of this truck phenomenon, but obviously this movie was so successful, suddenly we just got this deluge of trucker movies. The fact that even Sam Peckinpah was making trucker movies at this time shows how popular <laughs> this genre became, and obviously you get shows like Dukes of Hazard, and it seems like, yeah, the late 70s, early 80s was that yeah. perfect sweet spot for wrecking cars and driving trucks, and even like comedies like uh, 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 Blues Brothers. The last 10 minutes yeah. or 20 minutes of the movie is just this giant, prolonged, insane Car, car race and car chase. So it just was, for whatever reason, the audiences were ready to see this kind of shit. Uh, probably more so than in any other time since like the 1920s with like Keystone Cops and shit like that. Yeah, during that period of time, all every show, it seemed, had great car stunts. You know, cars being flamed all over the place. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, like Starsky and Hutch and things like that. But I, I mean, for me, as a little, little kid, I caught a lot of Dukes of Hazard. Dukes of Hazard and The Incredible Hulk came on back to back. And at age like five, <laughs> I thought that was just the coolest double feature. I think it was, I think it was before I even had cable. And I remember just like religiously, we would sit down and watch those two shows back to back. And I just loved yeah. them in pieces. Well, I was visiting here in Michigan at the time uh, when uh, the pilot came out for Dukes of Hazard. And I saw that. And uh, it was it was fantastic. It was one of the greatest things I've ever seen. Yeah, when I was in college, Dukes of Hazard came back on TV. I can't remember which channel it was, but we sat down and we we're like, all right, we're gonna watch the very first episode because none of us could remember it because we were just so little. And I remember in the in the very first, like the second or third scene, either. Bo or Luke's talking to Daisy. He's like, you know what? If we weren't related, we probably would have gotten married. She's like, wouldn't have been the first time in our family. I was like, yes. <laughs> I was like, this is my kind of show. But we've talked quite a bit. We actually haven't talked about any like the cars yet. And obviously, the feature attraction of this movie is the fucking Trans Am, which became a superstar yeah. after this. So to what degree are you a car buff or not a car buff? Because I know jack shit about cars. I, I love watching them on film. I love watching them do crazy things. But... For car buffs, obviously this movie is going to be appreciated in a different light. But do you do you consider yourself a, a car buff to a degree or not? Too bad we don't have a car buff on here to talk about this because I am not. I I know what you know, jack shit. Yeah, the, but right, uh, yeah, very cool. Well, then we can talk about them purely I, I know, from like an, uh, a qualitative emotional standpoint. Yeah, I know. I know all the cars that I like. Uh, I just don't know anything about them. But uh, what was it? Uh, I guess he had seen. Hal had seen a picture of the Trans Am, and he was like, oh, Bert would look really good in that car. So he calls up Pontiac and talks to them, and uh, they say, well, what do you need? And he's like, well, I need six Trans Ams, and I need four Bonnevilles. And they're like, uh, we'll give you four Trans Ams and two Bonnevilles. And, uh, and he used the hell out of all of them. Yeah, I imagine that they they quite literally like fell to pieces, at, or like the wheels quite literally were flying off the cart by the end because they put these damn cars through the fucking ringer throughout the course of the oh, shoot. Oh, he said uh, he said they they he killed one of them with the jump across the bridge. That's a killer. He stunt. killed one. He killed one. <laughs> killed one uh, that uh, went into the uh, what was that the, the baseball field. That's another good jump. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Killed that one. Uh, the other two were. Uh, beaten to hell, you know, driving over curbs and ditches and everything else they were driving through. And he said by the end of the movie, you know, they were taking pieces off of all the other cars to to keep one going. Nice. And like the last scene that in the movie with the car, another car, it wouldn't even start. Another car is pushing it into scene and then backs up. And so you just see it float into screen. 
and, uh, but it's deader than, deader than the doorknob. Well, I know that Trans Am sales saw a massive spike in 77. Apparently Skyrocket. They, yeah, they sold 68,000 cars. In 78, they sold 93,000. And then one year later, they sold 117,000. But I love how, like, when he's being propositioned to go on this job, he asked the, like, Paul, Paul Williams and the, and the much taller guys, like, well, I need money for a car, like a really fast car. And they, but they don't really give him that much money. They just give him, like, a couple grand. And I love how that was enough for him to, <laughs> to go off and buy a Trans Am then and there. And I can't remember, there's some discrepancy about what model Trans Am it is. And I know that it's got like different pieces from different years, so it's not technically, there's, you can't ever actually buy like the Smoking the Bandit Trans Am because it's like a, a hybrid of two different years. But whenever I think of Burt Reynolds, I know for a lot of people, if they think of Burt Reynolds, they're going to picture him with a bow hanging out on a river. And some people are going to picture him driving an ambulance and Cannonball Run. Some people are going to picture him in Boogie Nights directing pornography, but when I think of Burt Reynolds, the first images of, that flashes into my mind is him driving oh, this yeah. black Trans Am with a cowboy black hat. Trans-Am. It's just, there's no way I can think of him in any other way. Yeah, that, that's it. That's it. You know, yeah, all the just, other ones are, are great, but uh, that's the image that pops into my mind as well. Yeah, it's just an, an iconic look, without a doubt. I thought it's interesting that, uh, you know, after that, you know, when he films Hooper, the. The whole scene at the end with Hooper, he's driving a red version of the same thing. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I, I didn't even catch it. Once again, I'm, my, my knowledge of cars is like my, one of my biggest blind spots. I have certain like walks of life that I'm just like, I find to be like impenetrable or, mm-hmm. <laughs> or just no, none of the information like sticks or registers. And when it comes to cars, it, they just, it, cars are definitely one of my great like Achilles heel when it comes to expertise. Yeah. I might definitely want, I might want, like a muscle car from that period of time, but there's no way I would know uh, what the hell's wrong with it if anything happened to it or, or what I would need. I'd love to drive one, but I don't know anything about them. It, it looks fun as hell. Well, just a, a few yeah. last things before we move on to the next flick. Um, what I found interesting is that Pal Needham apparently really loved the animated short film Pop Goes the Weasel as a kid, and he said he basically was striving yep. for the same impact. And I feel like that's something that's oftentimes is missing today where a filmmaker takes pride and being an entertainer, I feel like there's this horrible, loathsome streak right now of self-importance where they feel like they need to preach to or lecture or hector mm-hmm. the audience or beat them over the head with like this clumsy, right. obvious agenda or message where it's almost like a big-ass truck backing up toward you going, beep, beep, beep. You're like, here comes the message. You get prepared. But it's like, I don't mind a message in a film, but at least have like a little subtlety or a little nuance. But there's so many clumsy filmmakers out, out there now, and I feel like being just a world-class entertainer with zero pretension, zero agenda, just being as charming and as enjoyable oh, yeah. as, as possible is a, is a, I think it's underappreciated in Hollywood right now. And I wish we had a few more Hal Needham's out there who would bring that back. Because I, I can sit there and watch them just eat hamburgers with Fred and talking to this stupid fucking dog and be and scream with laughter <laughs> <laughs> and have so much more fun than with so many other movies. Like I love how apparently the dog that was picked for Fred, Burt Reynolds picked him personally because the dog responded yeah. to zero commands or instruction of any kind. He wanted a dog <laughs> that was incapable of following Perfect. any direction of any kind for this movie. And it shows in his personality. He's such a fucking adorable dog. Yeah, I think it's great. How's, how's only intention was to make uh, an entertaining movie, you know, something that people would like to watch. They'd have fun. And he succeeded in so many levels. 
Yeah, entertainment, it's funny how like you think, oh, well, you're making a movie, like entertainment goes without being stated. But I think there are a lot of filmmakers out there where it's oftentimes the last thing on their mind, like let's get the funniest people, the sexiest women, the fastest cars, the coolest music, and just turn them loose and just give people a fucking ride. And yeah, Hal Needham, he just, he was a true showman. And I really appreciate great showmanship. And Alfred Hitchcock himself, apparently, according to his daughter, Patricia <laughs> yeah. Hitchcock, this was one of his massive, he called it, she called it a guilty pleasure. I don't really, the older I get, the, the less I believe in guilty pleasures. If like, you like something, Marcus Penn's great about this. Like, look, if you like it, just like it. Like, take ownership yep. of it, embrace it. And so, Smoking the Bandit, I don't try to justify it with some lofty terminology or any lofty explanations. I think it's one of the most entertaining movies ever made, period, from any era in any genre. And for me, that's all that matters. What the hell's the matter? What's going on? We haven't got enough pressure. Screw the pressure! What is happening? What the hell's going on down there? Keep rolling, goddammit! My life's worth more than a piece of film. I'll tell you exactly what your life is worth. Your life is worth $50,000. That's the price you put on it when you got behind this wheel. Sonny, Ski, if you do not try to make this jump, you'll never work in this town again. We're going, huh? We're going, yeah, we're going. You're crazy. I'm gonna hit it. Switch gears to the next flick on our list, uh, 1978, Hooper, Hal Needham's uh, Hooper. love song to the world. I think I called it Hopper earlier, but yeah, it's Hooper. <laughs> yeah, you did. Lo- I didn't say anything, though. Yeah, well, you should have contradicted me, man. Uh, I, I, uh, as the old expression goes, I am often wrong, but never in doubt, and I tend to just drink a lot of caffeine and start ra- ranting and raving, so uh, <laughs> I definitely occasionally need people to tap the brakes and let me know when I'm fucking up, but Hooper, because I think a lot of people... Don't know the premise for this, so from from your point of view, what is Hooper all about? Oh, Hooper's about uh, the life of. I, if you say it was the life of Hal Needham, you'd be close. It's not quite, but it, it is close. Uh, it's the life of a, an aging uh, stuntman that happens to be the one of the world's greatest stuntmen uh, of the time, and uh, you know that in he's watching new young stuntman. Uh, come in uh, to the field and him sort of battling with uh, you know how he feels and if he wants to continue doing what he's doing but uh, it's an amazing film you can't help like I said you can't help but see a lot of Hal uh, in Sonny Hooper yeah I think the opening credit sequence sums it up beautifully while Hal Needham might claim he doesn't put messages in his movies whether he likes it or not the opening credit sequence delivers a message because you see all these close-ups of Burt Reynolds getting into character and putting on his gear, and he's got like scars on his knees, and he's he's wrapping it up, and he's covering like parts of his body with like a brace, and he's got scars on his lower back and scars on his belly. He bears all the kind of all the all the all the all the, all the ruthless. Yeah 
ornaments of his trade of a career spent jumping off fucking jumping out of helicopters and falling off buildings and sliding motorcycles under trucks. And yeah, I think this is I think this is his most personal movie. Yeah. This is really telling about his life. The, uh, the other ones are great movies, but you know this one is, is, is very personal to him, I think. Well, also, when you just see the toll that's being paid, because obviously Brett Reynolds, uh, his character, he's still incredibly confident. He still loves what he does. But man, mm-hmm. his back is falling to pieces. He's popping yeah. painkillers all the time. His eyes are dilated from taking too many pills. And what's it's personal, but in a way, it's kind of not because I feel like this character, Hooper, he's not what... Like how Needham represent is actually best represented by the uh, was a Jan Michael Vincent character, like the new one who's coming in, who's like really uh, yeah into science yeah actually because he's really into the preparation. Whereas like the Burt Reynolds character, he's more when this guy's like all I need is to like a needle to shoot some painkillers into my ass afterwards, and I'm happy just to get thrown off of whatever. He's he's the old school guy. He's basically like the James Best character who's fading out. Yeah, I think I think he's a little. I think both of them are sides of how. Yeah. You get the sense of Jan Michael Vince's character. He's studying all the greats and he knows how the stunts are done. And he's, but he's into the engineering of a great yeah. stunt. It's not just about, do you have the balls to do this? On the other hand though, toward the end, when they're going to do the craziest stunt, like in human history, it's Burt Reynolds. Who's like, dude, like your life is worth $50,000. Like that's, that's why we're here. So let's fucking do this shit. And so, yeah, I, I think you're right. This movie between those two characters, you're seeing both aspects of how Needham's professionalism, as well as his devil may care, just insanity. Definitely. Definitely. You know, I didn't, I didn't think about that, about, uh, him being a lot like Jan Michael Vincent's character. But, uh, you're right. There was a time where he was the, he was the young guy coming in and he was like, you know what? Tell me what you want done. I'll do it. And, you know, and he did it. Well, I feel like this movie does a great job of just capturing a slice of life. You get a sense that while they're amping things up a bit, if you were to spend a few weeks or a few months in the company of Hal Needham and all of his friends and all of his fellow stuntmen, you're getting a glimpse inside their life, like when they're raising hell, driving down the highways, and they're like, they, they have like these crazy fucking girls that are hopping back and forth between cars and swapping beers. And you got Burt Reynolds driving backwards 55 miles an hour because technically, it, from his point of view, that's not against the law. He's, he's obeying the speed limit, but he just happens to be driving backwards. And they're they're going to bars and talking to like the reminiscing about old stunts and talking to the old timers. Um, who who's the actor who plays uh the the old timer in this? Who's kind of who's, who's really fa- Brian Keith. Yeah. Like, so you like you have a Jocko. You, yeah, you still have a ton of respect for the old timers around. And then at night, they've all been drinking for days, and they're just watching like highlight reels of some of their favorite old movies. Like it, you are capturing basically their lives, but it's obviously just a heightened, more intense version or a heightened sense of experience. Right, right. Well, what do you think of the big bar fight where Terry Bradshaw himself puts in an appearance? <laughs> uh, I loved it. That's that's one of the the first things that my memory lands on when I when I would think back to Hooper. Was he was still playing football that, at that uh, time? That fight scene. What was that? Was he still playing football at that time? I think so. Yeah, I think he was on break at that time, so he was able to fit that into his schedule. Yeah, let's look. I see he's seventy one now. Let's look at Terry Bradshaw. He played Bam 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 Bam. He had a six year period. Uh, oh, sorry. So he won four Super Bowl titles during a six year period. Let's see. What, what was his last year? He ducked into. Oh, so he was active. Yeah, from nineteen seventy to nineteen eighty three with the Steelers. So he absolutely one hundred percent was still an active player on their roster at that time. But yeah, I mean, 
I, I love a good old fashioned bar fight, whether you're talking about a martial arts movie or truck drivers or, or, a, or a Western or whatever the case might be. It's, it never gets old as long as you inject a little life and some crazy stunts into it. And I feel like you're blazing saddles or silent movies, whatever the case might be, bar fights are, are always good fun. But if Terry Bradshaw is so fucking athletic, I know like he kind of screwed up his stunt. He's supposed to jump out a window and like land on a pile of garbage, but he flew over the pile of garbage and does basically land it oh, on the pavement. It. And they're like, all right, well, maybe you should be a little less athletic and stop jumping like 30 feet and just jump and land where you're supposed to. Well, he jumped through there, hit that, hit that pavement, <laughs> missed everything, hit that pavement and turns around and is like, whoa, let's do it again. He was ready to go. Well, what's cool also about this is how if you're into filmmaking and the art of filmmaking, Robert Klein does a good job of showing the tyrannical, visionary, just total balls-to-the-wall director, and he's doing a very good impersonation of Peter Bogdanovich, who at this time <laughs> was incredibly successful, but just from like the way he speaks and the way that like, certain lines, like I know at one point he has a line where he says um, how movies are little pieces of time. That was paraphrased yeah. from Peter Bogdanovich, but obviously Peter Bogdanovich, this is before they all laughed, but he's already done Paper Moon. He's already done Last Picture Show. He's already done uh, uh, What's Up, Doc. He's a you know, massive director, right. but he's starting to slide as well. But you do get the sense of like after you've had a hit and they joke about how this after he's already got a movie under spell of a hundred million dollars. So you can make a case that through this character played by Robert Klein, you're getting yet another third aspect of Hal Needham's personality because he was coming off of a movie that just grossed a hundred million dollars and it was tough to tell him no about anything. Yeah. Uh early in his career, uh what was it, Richard Boone had said to him, uh, hey, we know two things about you. One, you can climb trees. And two, you're not bashful. And uh, when it comes to that period in time, he, I guess he wasn't bashful. And he was like, uh, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell it how I think it was between him and Peter, like on uh, the movie Nickelodeon, where he played the stunt coordinator on Nickelodeon. And uh, they just, uh, you know, for whatever it is, for whatever reason, people sometimes just don't get along. And they just did not click. Yeah, and there's a, I remember there's I saw a really strange interview one time where Peter Bogdanovich was filling in as the host on a talk show and Burt Reynolds was the guest. And there's a Ooh. weird tension between the two of them because Burt Reynolds is trying to compliment him about his, his success and how far he's, he's come in such a short period of time. But it's not like a fun, enjoyable interview. I mean, I've seen Peter Bogdanovich talk with a, a bunch of different filmmakers and actors in different, different uh, settings. And as long as you're talking about movies, maybe – Perhaps because Peter Bogdanovich became such a superstar and was like a household name in such a way, like maybe he felt a little threatened by a big, giant, charismatic, athletic dude like Burt Reynolds. I, I, re I really don't know, but you can feel the tension coming off of them in waves in, in that interview. And it's, it's, so maybe, maybe on Nickelodeon, it, it just did not go well. or It, it could be for right. any and, number of reasons, but Nickelodeon, I've never even finished. Like It's one of the Peter Bogdanovich's movies where I just I, I struggle with that one. Yeah, it it you know the the problem with Peter and Hal it might it might uh, been spawned a little bit also from uh, Bert having a problem with Peter. Well, and it was funny. I had talked to uh, I knew that uh, Bill Tech had done that uh, documentary on uh, Peter Bogdanovich, so I uh, I was talking to Bill last week, and I said, Hey, uh, what did you think about that? Uh, you know. Uh, Robert Klein's portrayal of Roger in the movie Hooper. And uh, right away he gets back to me and was like, oh my God, Moose, I've been waiting for four years for somebody to ask me that question. Because uh, apparently he's a, 
he's a really big fan of Hooper as well. And uh, both he and I, after seeing Hooper when we were little, we were both like, hey, I, I want to be a stuntman. That's what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> that's, that's probably not the most logical conclusion after seeing this movie, seeing how all the drugs they have to take just to get through the day. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, like, like Bill, him and I both uh, would, would do a lot of crazy stunts where we were growing up. But, uh, yeah, a, you know, afterwards I, I watched his documentary and I, I got to know Peter uh, through that pretty well. And, uh, again, you know, sometimes uh, people just don't mesh. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this movie falls right in line with a 70s cycle of movies about stunt work. And Danny Perry wrote oh. about it in his cult, cult Movies 3 book where he talks about how between this and Animal, Evil Knievel, Stunt Rock – uh, Daredevils, Death Cheaters, Stunts, Viva Knievel, <laughs> Super Stunt, Death Riders, and The Stuntman, that it was all this wow. giant cycle all in a short period of time. So suddenly people realize, you know what? There's some crazy motherfuckers behind these stunts, and maybe we ought to learn a little bit about them because, yeah, once once the Western fades out and you've got all these fucking movies with all these cars and trucks doing all this crazy shit, you want to learn about people who are making this stuff happen. Yeah. So maybe it's a good time to talk about some of the insane stunts in this because you've got two big ones that take place in this it, flick. It, it's a movie that's kind of miraculous when it comes to the stunts because, you know, it has its own story, you know, Bert's story as uh, Sonny Hooper. But none of the stunts really have, have to... Uh, impact that story at all because since they're working on a movie you know one day he could be filming a western another day a spy movie the stunt can be all kinds of different things so Hal was able to go ahead and just go balls to the wall and do as many different stunts as he could think of well which what when it comes to the stunts in this movie what's your personal fave oh you know what it's a small one there's a in uh in the early days in the, in the movie, they're doing the Western show that uh, Sony Hooper is going to uh, be at the Western show. And they have a stage coach coming towards the camera and the guy jumped and it's full speed. And the guy jumps off the stage coach, lands sideways on the horse, just as the stage coach flips on the side behind him as it's all coming towards the camera. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. I really like the, uh, chariot race where you get the, the two stunt people just throwing down where you really can see the contrast between the young and the old. And, yeah. uh, I love how like, um, like as Vincent chariot starts to break up, Reynolds leaps onto his horse to save him. It shows that camaraderie. Like this might be a rival. He might be an up a comer. who's going to possibly replace you at some point, but your fellow stuntman is in trouble, so let's dive in and lend a helping hand. And what that reminded me of, when I produced this uh, super, super low-budget film called Dead Doll, we had one, actually no, two stunts in it. One that was kind of simple, where a person fell through a window and landed on a, a ceiling window and landed on a mattress. And then we had another stunt where someone's going to jump out of a window holding a mannequin that was attached to a metal cord, and the cord would pull the mannequin away once the person cleared frame, and they would land on this giant uh, kind of inflatable cushion thing. But something went wrong where the mannequin and the cord got wrapped around his arm, and it sliced through all the muscles and tendons down to the bone. And when he landed, oh. he was bleeding all over the place, and 
Luckily, because stunt people are so supportive of each other, he had like five or six of his best friends there who immediately knew what to do. We actually threw him in the back of my Suburban, drove him to an emergency room. And I remember just sitting there in the emergency room on the plastic surgeon was like reattaching all the tendons on his arm. And they're all just telling stories back and forth about their days as like college athletes and how they drifted into being stunt people. But just that support force is incredible. It's a, you know, a simple gag on a low-budget movie. And obviously, it wasn't that simple because it went horribly wrong. And when the guy woke up from surgery, he said like, did we get the shot? Like, they're all just like such in- insane pros. Yeah. And so that was my, my brief glimpse into the world of stunts. And also, I got awarded a stunt department shirt on Hannibal because I participated in one driving shot. They needed um, an additional car for this bridge shot toward the end where all these FBI agents are driving across the road or a bridge as a helicopter's following them. And so they put a jacket and a hat on me and I, I was driving a grand marquee for my boss at the time. And so I got to drive along with all these people and that was a ton of fun as well. So they gave me an honorary shirt for, for helping out with that shot. But nice. they're really cool and fun to be around. But Perhaps my favorite stunt, though, in this movie has got to be the jump from the helicopter. Like, I like seeing cars jumping over bridges and jumping over, over things, but seeing an actual physical person flying through the air, dropping 224 feet into an airbag, that's what I live for. It's why I like Buster Keaton movies and Jackie Chan movies and things like that. So, for me, that would be one of the high watermarks of the movie. Oh, yeah, that was great. That was, uh, what was it? A.J. Bakunas was uh, the stuntman, and uh, that was a world record jump for him. Yeah, that's that's intense. I guess maybe the reason that that for me feels more believable than at the end when they're about to do this giant rocket jump over the bridge. Like the reason I perhaps is a little less impact for me because they do this entire insane sequence where they're basically blowing up Damnation Alley and they're they're blowing they're blowing up buildings and things are collapsing. And in the context of the film, it appears as if they're basically doing like ten or twenty different stunts all in the context of one shot. And I was like, you know what? If you're doing stunts, you're going to break it up into pieces. And so I feel like that was the one part of the movie where it stopped feeling right. like a really realistic, believable portrayal of the life of a stuntman. And I was like, all right, well, now we're like in like cannibal run territory where it's just like it's so completely, totally over the top that it, it's kind of like lost me as in terms of just like being a movie about movies. But obviously it is killer seeing them do that, like that rocket jump over the bridge because you cannot do it just with like simple physics. You have to like blast it like a goddamn spaceship. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's once again, like how neat him. He was happy to push the envelope in every way, shape or form and wanted to always you know, try something that had never been done before. And so the, the super jump was, um, I guess, unexplored train. That was the, the, the undiscovered country for this movie. Yeah. He was, uh, he was one of the innovators there with putting uh, uh, those rockets in the cars or in the heat that he had one in the boat when he did that jump in Gator. And that was a world record, uh, jump. Uh, and that he had that stunt he was doing for uh, GM where he jumped the truck off the side of the bridge to the other side. Uh, one of the times where he hit the other side of it and broke his back, but, uh, he had a rocket in that one. So he was always, he, he was, it was innovative how he was using the different, the different uh, ways to use a rocket or, uh, uh, setting up different stunts in, in different ways. It's uh, pretty amazing. Well, also, it's like you know he's not necessarily going to be risking people's lives willy-nilly because he's been in there and done it all himself, and he's probably w- perfectly happy, probably perfectly eager to switch places with people in spite of yeah. all his <laughs> numerous injuries. But obviously, this is what, I mean, it's one of the reasons why he's one of the only two stuntmen in history to win an honorary Oscar. The only other person is uh, Yakima Kanut. Yakima Kanut, like, he was John Wayne's double like in Stagecoach right. where you do all those crazy horse stunts, and he obviously 
coordinated the chariot race and Ben Hur. He's a, a legend in his own right. If you ever want to do a follow up episode yeah. about Yakima Kanut, I'll be totally down for that as well because he's such a legend. But maybe now's the time to start switching gears into one of my childhood favorite movies. A movie that <laughs> long before I knew who Hal Needham was, long before I knew who Burt Reynolds was, long before I gave even knew really what a movie was. The Cannonball Run from 1981, I probably saw 10,000 times on TV as a little kid, and I, I can't separate the movie from my childhood nostalgia because it's just, it's totally, completely a part of those formative yeah. years, but how did you first encounter The Cannonball Run? <laughs> I think most of the movies I caught on HBO, I think all of the, like Smoking the Bandit and uh, Hooper and then Cannonball Run, all on HBO. Sometimes my parents would go to sleep and I'd be watching HBO when they weren't around. Saw some things I shouldn't have saw. But, but these are uh, all PG movies. I mean, think about like the humor in all these movies. It seems like rough and mature, but these are PG flicks. Yeah. Like when, uh, yeah, like in Jackie Gleason's telling the boys not to play with themselves. Like one thing, like PG movie. Like you would not see in a PG movie today is people <laughs> making references to playing with themselves, or like people making references to like not wearing panties and like Cannibal Run. It's like what the fuck? This is a PG movie, and Farrah Foss is talking around talking about how she's walking around commando style. Like, like it just blows my mind what PG used to represent. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, the PG from that well, era is a thousand times cooler than the PG-13 of 2020. Well, yeah, Hal, Hal had said that, uh, you know, one of the things he's good at it, and what he wants to put in his movie is action. He's like, not violence, but action, which is pretty tame, but amazing to watch. Absolutely. Well, this movie, it's funny, like, as I was revisiting, because I hadn't watched Cannibal Run in literally decades, and when I was revisiting it, it was uh, it was almost like an out of body experience as some of the scenes. Isn't, that it, isn't it great? You're doing these podcasts and there's a couple movies. You'll come up with something like this and you'll be oh, like, yeah, "Oh my absolutely. god, I get but to I watch just, Cannibal Run again." Oh, uh, but it was like it was so like overwhelming at times. We're like remembering these scenes and remembering certain images. But like yeah. it blows my mind is that I was able to enjoy it at that young age, even though I didn't really appreciate who Roger Moore was at the time. Like I'd seen For Your Eyes Only on TV, <laughs> but I wasn't really aware of like the Bond theme or the Bond movies or anything like that. Like I didn't know who Jackie Chan was. 
I didn't know who Farrah Foster was. I didn't know who Peter Fonda was. I didn't know who any of these fucking people were. And so, yeah. but I was just enjoying it as a story and I was just enjoying it. It's just a simple concept. And well, actually, before we get into the concept, maybe explain how, how Needham actually participated in something resembling the Cannibal Run in, in his own life. That is fascinating because if, if you watch the movie, you pretty much know what Hal Needham did. Uh, what was it? Uh, when he was doing, there was a point in time where he was, uh, uh, <laughs> they were promoting the Hal Needham doll that was going to come out. They had him doing a whole bunch of different, you know, uh, stunts to bring attention to himself. And one of them was uh, a rocket car trying to break the, uh, the sound barrier. And during that time, there was a CBS commentator, Brock Yates. Uh, they got to be friends, and uh, Brock told him about the Cannonball Run. And, uh, you know, going from uh, uh, Connecticut all the way to uh, California. And uh, they thought it would be a good idea to participate in that themselves. So they did. And uh, they came up with the idea of having uh, an ambulance. And uh, so when you watch the movie, that is the same ambulance that they actually used when they did it. Yeah, I'm reading in, real life. in my notes that they they modified it so they changed the engine to a Hemi engine so they could go fast as uh -huh. hell, 145 miles an hour. But also, it had four like gas areas so they could refill you know, it. The, the story came, really the story quickly. changes a couple times. Uh, one of the stories was four, and then uh, I had heard there's two gas tanks with three uh, nozzles uh, to go ahead and put gas in all at the same time. But either way, it was like 90 gallons worth that they could carry. Gotcha. Well, it just shows that how Needham, he like the life that he's portraying on the screen is very much was the the life that he lived. Like the, these movies feel like an extension, quite literally an extension of his personality. And while I might prefer as an adult, I prefer the screenplay of Smoking the Bandit mm -hmm. far more than Cannibal Run. This what it reminds me of is like these old movies from like the '60s where you'd get just a shitload of movie stars and perhaps a thin <laughs> kind of clumsy yeah. premise, and you just get to enjoy the fact that you're watching Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin and Roger Moore and Jackie Chan and Burt Reynolds and all these actors all in the same movie, and perhaps the characters are a little thin, and, and but it's just so it's just it's just like just pure unbridled pleasure from the moment the movie starts. Yeah, it doesn't. And, yeah, it doesn't matter. That, uh, that the characters are a little thin because it's the race that counts. And as long as they're on the race, uh, you know, they, they just shine. It's, it's wonderful. You don't need to know, you know their full backstories. You, you get a little bit of that with uh, Bert's character uh, and uh, Dom DeLuise's character. But, uh, yeah, and, the, and, the how, and how Captain Chaos came into being. I mean, that was another big part of it. Like When I was a little kid, <laughs> if you wanted to see superheroes on screen, you had a couple options. Like You could watch The Electric Company if you wanted to see Spider-Man. You could yeah. watch The Incredible Hulk and see Lou Ferrigno. You could see oh, yeah. like you know reruns of The Super Friends. And you could say maybe Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends, but there weren't a lot of superheroes on screen yet. And so I was you so get, young uh, and so Electric impressionable. Electric Girl and Dino Woman. Yeah, but like when I was, but I was so little though. I thought Captain Chaos was like a real superhero, and I remember, oh. <laughs> I remember sitting there with my friend, this guy named Ryan Bradshaw. We were little kids, and we were watching the outtakes, and we were watching the outtakes solely because we wanted to hear him mention the name Captain America, and it was he meant to say Captain <laughs> USA, but he says Captain America instead. And we were just so excited to hear Captain America even mentioned in a movie. It was like a really big deal for us. So this was like you know, this was my Marvel Cinematic Universe as a as a very young kid. Uh. That was great. Well, it's amazing that Hal Needham never got a gig directing a James Bond film because I know he like he obviously kept flirting with it. Like he, you see him in um, 
and oh. <laughs> and with like Hooper, how he has like a little James Bond homage with like the music when the guy's yeah. going down the outside of the building, and then of course in Cannibal Run, you got Roger Moore making all these references to all these movies, but it's like these like clever like plays on words that they don't quite sound like James Bond films, but they're they're close enough. But it's actually the only time that Roger Moore ever drove the Aston Martin. He never drove the Aston Martin on uh, in any of the James Bond films in which he appeared. Wow. Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The Roger Moore's character in this is absolutely wonderful. The and fact I, that he's a, he's got a different <laughs> chick in his car. He's a, Roger single Moore, scene in which he appears. <laughs> he's a kind of like a Roger Moore lookalike who's uh, pretending he's Roger Moore uh, as sort of a James Bond character. It's so much fun. And, and the music, you listen to the music, you'd swear you were listening to, the James Bond music. He said he was like one note away from being sued. <laughs> Absolutely, and like making references to movies like The Fly Who Bugged Me and things like that. But yeah, <laughs> Roger, Roger Moore. He's uh, he's absolutely delightful. But you know, I didn't appreciate this when I was a little kid. But Adrian Barbeau, I see her in a completely different light. You know, at age, as a, at age forty three as well. I love like her scam. Everybody's got their like their hook for how they're going to get across the country. Whether it's like masquerading as priests or masquerading as ambulance drivers. Like everybody's got like like or like Jackie Chan. Like they just can drive at night with the, like the lights off because of all their high technology. <laughs> but I love how Adrian Barbeau and her friend are like, well, we're just going to show our tits every step of the way. Uh-huh. And the cops will just let it, let us off. And of course you get that great scene where she's zipping down like, her, her, the front of a skin tight outfit. And it's a, it's a lady cop who's less than impressed and so on and so forth. But man, yeah, like stuff like that. It just flew right over my head when I was five, six years old, however the hell old I was when I watched this. And much like yeah. Farrah Fawcett talking about how everything she wears is pink, not but not her undies because she doesn't wear any. Like all, <laughs> all that kind of stuff flew light years over my head when I was a little guy. Yeah, I, I knew as a little kid, because I'm a little bit older, uh, I knew that uh, that I was liking what I was seeing. I just didn't know how much he's watching behind the green door while driving behind the green door. (laughs) It was a major porn movie from the seventies, you know, Marilyn chambers. It's like one of the biggest porn movies of that era. Like I haven't, I have not seen that one, but I I, I certainly, I certainly know Marilyn chambers. Yeah. It's well, it's well worth a look, but it's like, how the fuck is this a PG movie when you got Jackie Chan watching porn while while driving the car? Like that's just insane. He said they, they, they held on that image of her as long as they could. Before they showed anything else. Well, this is part of Jackie Chan's initial attempt at breaking into the American market. He'd done uh, Battle Creek Brawl the year before, and obviously this is a Golden Harvest movie. In Golden Harvest, they produced a lot of films in Hong Kong. And it was successful in the sense that like the first Jackie Chan movie I ever saw was Cannonball Run, but it was not yeah, successful in the sense that it didn't ex- – he didn't pop as a big giant star because he's barely in the movie. Right. But what's cool is how this movie with the outtakes at the end, how Jackie Chan loved the outtakes at the end of the movie and his movies yes. from that point on started employing outtakes. So you see here that Hal Needham, American movies love to steal from Hong Kong, but I love how we have the reverse here where Jackie Chan is stealing from Hollywood. And wow. it just shows Isn't how great? Yeah, game follows game and great filmmakers and great performers, they inspire each other. But you have this genuine cultural exchange. And because... Like whether you were talking about Rumble in the Bronx or whatever the case may be, like a huge part of the fun of watching Jackie Chan movies is watching all the outtakes and all the, like all the bloopers at the end of the movies. Right. Yeah. Uh, Raymond Chow was interested in breaking into the Western market, and uh, you know he's like, "Hey, I got fifteen million, but we got to have uh, Jackie in the movie." And they were like, "No problem." And uh, that was the first time I had uh, come across Jackie Chan, and 
you you can't after you see him that first time doing that you you can't forget him he was amazing in it well they did might have done the movie for 15 million but five of it went to burt reynolds making him one of the highest paid actors in movie history right <laughs> like well he a, said he, he said uh he was like i'm never gonna i'm not gonna be in any of these uh fast car uh good old boy, good old boy movies again and uh and hal says they want to pay you five million and he's like ah, you know what but uh this whole cannonball thing sounds like a great idea for a movie i'm in <laughs> yeah i mean five million dollars definitely helps uh, ease a lot of your concerns and i feel like you could remake this movie today with a whole new cast and like imagine if you threw in Fuck, I mean, just, I mean, you could throw, like, pick, pick any stars you like, but say Chris Pratt or whomever in, like, the Burt Reynolds role, and then you just filled it with all these, like, aging movie stars from across the globe. It's such a simple premise, and it would just, it would, it would, it would easily, I mean, people watching these Fast and the Furious movies, if you did, like, no. a Fast and the Furious style comedy of people racing across the country, people would absolutely lose their minds. Well, and the movie's almost 40 years old. Of course you can remake it at this point. Hasn't, hasn't the Fast and Furious movies kind of become the comedy? I mean, you know, it's all action, and it's. I I would like to say yes, but the movies are so deadly serious and earnest. Like, you know, like you know, I mean, Vin Diesel, he doesn't really tell jokes. Whereas in this, like Burt Reynolds, <laughs> he's he's got a ton of jokes. My favorite moment of the entire movie is actually during one of the outtakes. I remember when uh, Dom DeLuise died, or maybe it was when um maybe it was when Burt Reynolds died. But someone posted just a scene from the outtake where Dom DeLuise can't stop laughing, and Burt Reynolds is like, "Stop it." Stop it! And like he leans in, and, and uh, he's like, "Don't hit me! Don't hit me!" He's like, "I'm not gonna hit you! I'm not gonna hit you!" Stop it! Stop it! Okay, okay. Wait a minute, I got something. This will help. This will help. No, I'm not gonna hit you. I'm not gonna hit you. I'm not gonna hit you. Now, just listen to me. I swear to you, I'm not gonna hit you. Watch, watch. Okay, okay, okay. I'm ready now. Here we go. I'm ready. I'm ready. I swear to God, I'm ready. We're off. Their chemistry there is so incredible. So yeah. I, I wish the uh, Fast and the Furious movies would embrace, but I feel like the humor in Fast and the Furious tends to be kind of stupid and kind of broad. It's mostly just like people are going to go, oh my God, and just like reacting when something crazy happens. But I feel like the humor is a little lacking in, in that franchise. So I feel like those movies would make that, more though. money if the humor were uh, were kind of amped up a bit. Yeah, if they, if they amped up the humor, do you think they could do that? Like it'd be a Fast and Furious whatever number the cannonball run. Oh, I mean, actually, I think you just pitched a $2 billion movie, but if you have a fast and furious and just leave the number out and just call it the cannonball run. And you just have a situation where every single character from the fast and furious competes in the cannonball run. In addition to, right. Oh my God. I mean, yeah. Well, shit, you should, you should become a movie producer. Cause that, that is a giant, <laughs> that's a giant <laughs> movie concept. But what I know they won't include Go picture. Like lines like this when Farrah Fawcett makes a joke about how she was expecting a gangbang and Burt Reynolds is like, oh, we're racers, <laughs> not rapists. Like, can you imagine if a Hollywood movie threw that fucking line in now and people would lose their fucking, their skin would melt off their face in rage. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. here it is, PG movie for kids in 1981. Uh, 
Sorry, I was laughing at the last part. So if you uh, ask me something, <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no worries at all. So, admittedly, you met, you met, mentioned earlier that you're not a giant car buff, but of all the cars in this movie, which ones scream Moose Matson's name the loudest? I, I, I can't help but uh, I can't help but think of the Lamborghini. I love that Lamborghini. Yeah, I found a list of all the cars, and you've got yeah, JJ and Victor are driving a 1978 Dodge Sportsman, Seymour's driving a 1964 Aston Martin, Blake and Fenderbomb <laughs> are driving a 1977 Ferrari, Terry and Mel are driving the Chevrolet Chevelle Laguna, Marcy and Jill, a Lamborghini, another Lamborghini, the Japanese team, which of course Jackie Chan apparently was pissed playing a Japanese character, but they're driving a Subaru. The Sheik is driving a Rolls Royce, and Mad Dog and Batman are driving a GMC C35 pickup. I mean, it's, and they're, they're still more like there's a Harley Davidson Sportster, but it just for, I feel like for car buffs, <laughs> this movie's just a, a, a giant wet dream. And maybe my favorite bit of all might have to be when you just have this giant battle royale where. Peter Fonda, who obviously was in like Easy Rider and all these like biker movies in the Rider. late '60s, early '70s, shows up with this giant biker gang, and it just turns into this giant brawl. Where if you said like Jackie Chan and James Bond are in a scene where they fight like Easy Rider, it's like all right, well that that movie doesn't exist, but it does exist. So you get you get it in this movie. So it just I feel like at age 43, I just look at it in a completely different light than as a kid. As a kid, it was just a really fun roller coaster ride. But now it's like this incredible sentimental journey when I when I revisit it. Well, as far as the fight scene goes, it's just interesting how what thirty eight years or thirty seven years on this planet will do in terms of your perspective on a certain movie. And it was a giant hit when it came out. Like I know a lot of people kind of shat on it for for a variety of reasons, but it was the Crazy. number six most popular movie that year in North America. So that is uh, no small achievement. It's not smoking the bandit level success, but still, no one's ever going to go broke making the sixth highest grossing movie of the year. Yeah, it was great uh, when you see, you know, they, they zoom in on uh, Jackie fighting and then they switch over to Roger Moore and you see him sort of moving his hands around watching Jackie. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, what else do you want to say about the rest of Hal Needham's career? Because he made other movies. He's got movies like Megaforce, which has got a cult following. <laughs> but I revisited it before this just to just to see because I'd also seen that around the same time that I saw it's amazing how many of these movies that I saw as a kid and having no idea who Hal Needham was but man Megaforce is one of those movies that kind of I probably should have just left it in the past because I, re I remembered it being really cool and it's it's not like I know so, and this yeah. is not an insult to people who love that final scene where the guy's on the rocket flying through the sky swirling around before he lands in the back of the plane and everybody's high-fiving like I get why people enjoy watching that but it's it's pure camp and totally ridiculous but what are your feelings yeah. about movies like Stroke Race, where you start to see the formula of Hal Needham and Burt Reynolds starting to show a little age? You know, I saw Stroke Race uh, a long time ago, and I only saw it that one time. So I remember very little about that. But that was a time period where uh, Hal was getting into the NASCAR business himself. Yep. And, uh, you know, had his own his own car. And, uh, so I don't really know, uh, much about that period. Yeah. I tried rewatching it for this and about 25 minutes in, I was like, Ooh, this is nowhere near as good as smoking the bandit. And I ended up bailing on it. So I didn't, right. I didn't see smoking the bandit Two preparing for this. I didn't see cannibal run to, uh, although as a little kid, I saw cannibal run Two many times because for whatever reason it got like way more playtime on HBO in the mid eighties than the first one, even though it's not nearly as good. 
But and then you're like Rad from 1986. I saw Rad a few times. On uh, I don't think it's as good as BMX Bandits. But if you want to see Lori Laughlin before she got in trouble for that, you know, that application <laughs> scandal, that there she is as a, as a, as a little girl. But I oh, guess yeah. you 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 did you made a good call on the three films that you chose to represent his career as a director because like I'd never seen the villain. But I guess Death Car on the Freeway. Do you do you want to mention anything about Death Car on the Freeway? We briefly mentioned it earlier, but I. I, I... I really enjoyed that one. Um, you know, the the copy that was on YouTube that I watched, it felt like I was watching an old 70s TV movie. Yeah. Which is what it was. And uh, you can't, you can't uh, watch it without seeing, in the action, you, you see Hal's style. When that van comes flying up on their backside, it is, it is scary. Did, were you able to watch the movie? I watched like the first half the other night. I didn't get a chance to finish it, but it reminded me quite a bit of like Steven Spielberg's Duel. Yes, it's very much like that. Uh, and because uh, you know the guy's just uh, it, it doesn't not well, I guess he doesn't like the women. He doesn't like women drivers. Well, they're talking about the, talking about the, the villain of the movie, not Hal Needham, because Hal Needham, it seems like, has this enormous affection for women drivers and, like, right. <laughs> with, with, with the scene that he That's inserts himself I mean. into in the movie. But like Duel, uh, he's the, the bad guy. You never see him. You just see his hands, and, uh, and he runs people off the road and tries to kill them that way. Yeah, and, uh, of course, Hal Needham is in the movie because the, the news reporter that's uh, 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 reporting about the story and sort of trying to investigated herself goes to Hal Needham because he runs a, a school where they teach defensive driving and, uh, and he's great in it. Yeah. I mean, he's got charm for days in that scene where he's like, he's really supportive and encouraging. And, um, yeah, I was like, God damn, like he is so, like, maybe he couldn't have been Burt Reynolds, but he could have easily been a character actor, but perhaps his ego would not have allowed him such a, uh, a lowly career because I think he does have this enormous personal charm, and he pops up a ton in his movies. But I kind of wish we'd gotten a chance to see more of Hal Needham on the big screen because I think he does have some chops, but obviously his real gift was in orchestrating these insane stunts. Like, There's only so many hours in a day. You can't do everything. But I was actually right. really – was, that was my favorite scene that I saw in the movie was that scene where he's teaching how to drive. Oh yeah. And, uh, there's a scene where you think some, somebody's attacking him. You think that the, the bad guy is attacking her, uh, and then she spins out and then he comes over. Obviously he was, you know, playing out a scenario with her and she's like, Oh, I know I did this. I did that. And the first thing he does like, well, let me tell you, let me tell you what you did. Right. And, uh, that's also his charm. You know, he's, he's a fantastic instructor too. <laughs> well, if you were to sum up his career and or like in the final oh analysis, gosh. like like looking back on his career as a whole, any final words or final impressions or just anything like you, you give a shout out to anything we overlooked or we didn't get to, but now's the time to fill in the gaps. That anything that we because obviously I tend to drink too much caffeine and start talking people's ears off when we record, but I want to give you this chance now yeah. to get anything off your chest about how Needham that you have not had a chance to say so far. Oh, boy. Well, actually, I was just going to say one thing, and then it got replaced by something else in my head. Uh, ever since I was a, ever since I was a, a little kid, uh, and I saw those first couple movies like Smoking Abandoned, I heard the name Hal Needham. So uh, I've kind of always heard his name, and I just never saw him. And then every so often, like at the end of Cannonball Run, you'd see him pass in front of the camera, and I'd be like, oh, there he is. Now I can see him. But I've always sort of heard his name 
all these years, even up to now, I've known, you know, Hal Needham was this great stuntman, but I I never really dove into his, his career this full until now. And I just found it absolutely amazing. You know, if you, uh, if you read his, his book, Stuntman, my car crashing, plane jumping, bone breaking, death defying Hollywood life, Hal Needham. I, I just found it amazing. I, I read it twice. Um, when I think I think Bill has read it too. <laughs> but uh, well, we need to get you and Bill together on an episode talking about stunts and action and that sort of thing. Because whenever Bill uh, pitches episodes, he's always like, "Hey, I want to come on and talk about these like art house documentaries." And I'm like, "No." But I'm gonna make you talk about, you know, tough guys, and I always, I always kind of force him to talk about certain things like action stars and things like that. But he's always, he's always making the pitch to talk about much more highbrow stuff. But maybe, maybe if I, I know it's a shame because when I talked to him, he probably would have loved to come on and talk about Cannonball Run. Oh shit! Well, we should, we should, we should, or Hooper. Teamed, we should have teamed y'all up. What was it uh, after the movie came out? You know, he said that uh, right away he wanted to be a stuntman. And uh, he made his mom go out and buy him the uh, the record for the soundtrack to Hooper, so he could hear that song over and over again about the Hollywood stuntman. I mean, it's a dope tune. It's, 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 I don't think it's as strong as Eastbound and Down, which is just delightful. But it's still it's a, it's, yeah. a, it's a very it's a very strong tune. It's but it's catchy. Yeah, but it's catchy, but it's not like glorious. Like Eastbound and Down is just glorious. Like it, when it, it get the, toward the end of Smoking the Bandit, it's been a while since you've heard it, and suddenly like it's the beginning of Act Three. It's kind of the the final blast on the highway. We've had that seventh inning stretch where Sally Field and Burt Reynolds have made love, and suddenly you just hear that music just Ooh. boom, just kicking. You're like, oh my god, I forgot. Like that theme song is back, and like it's it's like. It, like we're gonna start hurtling toward the end now, and it's just uh, a yeah, perfect harmony between story and music coming together, and so that that's tough to replicate. They just they really found that proverbial lightning in a bottle when it comes to the theme song. Yeah, I think we. Movie. Oh, I think we breathed over some parts of uh, like Hooper that I wanted to talk about. Like uh, we didn't mention the fact, or I didn't think we mentioned the fact that Sally Field was in that one also. Absolutely. Uh, as his girlfriend, and uh, she looked amazing in that one. And also, oh my God, James Best. James Best as his buddy, Cully, who most everybody in the world knows him as uh, Roscoe Pico Train. Yeah, but he's but, got a uh, huge career. Like he's in, uh, what was it? Was it Ride Lonesome or which? There's one of those uh, Bud Bedecker westerns that he's in mm-hmm. at the beginning. He's incredible, but he's also like in Sam Fuller's Shot Corridor. But hang on, I'm, I'm going to get he's crazy. He's in Taming of the Shrew. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a delightful actor and totally charming. I mean, I, I grew up watching oh, yeah. him in Dukes of Hazzard and I love him to pieces, but as I've uh, gone back and studied film history and all that good stuff, he just, he pops up all over the I think place. Hooper was the first time I ever saw him. And so that afterwards you see him in Dukes of Hazzard and I'm like, oh, that's, 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 that's a guy. That's Burt Reynolds' buddy in Hooper. Yeah, so it's Ride Lonesome where he plays Billy John, which is one of my favorite uh, Bud and Better comedians. That and Tall T are the two really good ones. But yeah, it's the opening scene where uh, where Randolph Scott moves in and kind of bluffs mm. him and captures him. But uh, yeah, he's he's a cool actor and he's got one. I mean, talking about people with a lot of credits, he doesn't have as many credits as Hal Needham, but he's got 189 acting credits. And he yeah, sadly passed away in 2015 at the age. Of yeah, I, I watched. I didn't even know that. I watched the. Uh, it was sort of a. It wasn't a documentary. It was sort of him filming something where it was, uh, you know, his life, what was currently going on, some of the projects that he was doing. 
And then afterwards, I uh, I looked him up and saw that he was he was gone. I was like, oh man, geez. Well, as we're getting toward the end of this episode, are you warmed up enough to possibly give us your best predator impression of Billy laughing? Because I remember you and um, <laughs> you and your what, what's the the girl's name from Australia who you're friends with on uh, on Twitter? Uh, Gidget. Um, yeah, y'all were talking, and then you sent out this tweet where you're like, and it was so goddamn funny. And I ended up sharing it with everybody like, kind of like in the wrong reel like chat room, and they were howling, yeah. but. Uh, do you do impressions spontaneously or what? Give, give me the, the lowdown on your, uh, your love of impressions. Yeah, that was it. I, 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 I would say that I don't do any impressions and it turns out I, I, I do a couple and they might not be any good, but they're fun. <laughs> well, it's the joke about whether or not, whether or not a girl has a big pussy and like, why'd you say it twice? Like I didn't, it was the echo and he walks away and Billy's sister for a second. <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and it's that, and then we hear it again from the predator's point of view with like those those filters like distorting it, which makes it even more more bizarre and more yeah. crazy. And so, goddamn, too bad this... I'm not at the bathroom. I'd give it a real nice reverb. Yeah, where you can just really cut loose. Oh man, so yeah, like like I was saying, you know, Hal Needham. I, I've known sort of just his name, kind of uh, most of my life, and uh, it's been a pleasure uh, diving into. Uh, you know, to his life, like I have this past uh, couple weeks or months. I know we've been trying to do this uh, podcast for. Well, it's bizarre a that weeks. stunt people are not more highly regarded in the industry because they play such a key role yeah. in so many movies, and yet there's no Academy Award for like best stunt person of the year. And I feel like not that's yet. such, no, such no, a no brainer. Like they should have best coordinator, best stunt person, etc. And I feel like they should almost like create their own like award ceremony. Yeah, because, when it comes to stunts, they get lumped into special effects. Yeah, and it's just like it's ridiculous because even with so much being done on the computer these days, stunt people still play a huge role. If you watch a movie like John Wick Three, guess what? There are a hell of a lot of really talented stunt people making the movie as, oh, yeah. co as cool as it fucking is. And so it's just r ridiculous that their work gets kind of overlooked to this day. Uh, you know, a hundred and twenty years into the history of movies. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 crazy. Um, I guess you had uh, also seen. Uh, that clip where Quentin Tarantino uh, was uh, talking with Hal Needham. Well, it was talking. He was talking about him to everybody because it was during the period where they were going to honor him with a. Uh, it, I don't. It was. It was. An, it was an Academy Award. Yeah, well, I don't, like think, it, I don't think it was that. I don't think that particular speech was for the honorary Academy Award. Let me see. Quentin Tarantino. I was thinking it was that night. Hal Needham. If you go on YouTube and just Google Quentin Tarantino and Hal Needham at the 2012 Governor's Awards, Tarantino ah, makes a very moving little like three-minute speech about him. And also, it, that, that if you look that up, Another video that'll pop up is The Greatest Stuntman Alive, Hal Needham. And there's this great bit where he's talking to the interviewer about it. He's like, oh, well, I only do two things real. Like, I shoot, shoot action well and I make people laugh. She's like, well, there's another thing you do well. Just, like, sit there looking good. And he's like, ah! And he, gets, he gets really flattered. <laughs> I was going to bring that up earlier. <laughs> yeah, but I love how like the, the interviewer, this, like, who's a good-looking girl, she's blatantly just flirting with him then and there. He's a, he's a handsome devil. And obviously, anybody who's as big a stud as Hal Needham, he's going to have uh, certain uh, qualities that women desire. Yeah, Hal and Bert had a lot of fun back in the day. Oh my God, can you imagine being a fly on the wall like in like 1972 in one of those weird ass tile bedrooms of Bert Reynolds? Yeah. <laughs> there were times where uh, 
where Bert would come home and uh, he would see a note saying, hey, you know, the pl- Hal would leave him a note saying, hey, the place is yours, but I need it for the next three days. And then Bert would sort of just leave. <laughs> I mean, I don't care. I, I, unless like someone's bringing home Catherine Deneuve, like they're not going to get to take over <laughs> for three days. But uh, when that, in that biography that you read of Hal Needham, how much detail was in there about his time living with Bert Reynolds? A lot. Nice. Well, I need a to lot. add that to my to-do list. Cause, uh, yeah, there's... Yeah. there's, there's uh, <laughs> what was it? There was a, a whole thing about the Skid Row serial killer during that time and something that happened at Bert's place. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of really good stuff in the book. Well, I will definitely hunt it down. And if people out there have not seen these movies, I mean, if you made it this far into the podcast without having seen these movies, then uh, you're, you're a very patient listener, but definitely hunt down the flicks. They're well worth seeing. But Moose, I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been getting to actually talk to you at length because you've been such a great listener and such a great supporter of both my YouTube channel as well as the podcast. And you're always so great about lending us your support on social media. So I'm just thrilled we finally got a chance to officially induct you into the, uh, the wrong real inner circle. But if people want to hunt you down to listen to your impressions or talk about how need them or whatever the case might be, <laughs> where would people be able to find you online? Uh, mostly just at Moose Matson on Twitter. Beautiful. That's about it. And also, correct me if I'm wrong, but Moose Matson is not technically your name. It's like a like a nickname. How how did that how did that come about? Uh, see, the the day I popped out, my dad said I had big feet and he <laughs> called me Moose that day. He's like, "That's a moose." Very and my nice. name's been Moose ever since. And uh, if you watch the uh, Abbott and Costello movie, Hold That Ghost, the gangster in that movie, his name is Moose Matson. I was like, oh, I love that name. That's my name now. Very cool. So who knows? Pretty soon I might uh, I might go to the courts and make it official or something. I like it. Well, I can't even remember what your actual name is. So yeah, as far as I'm concerned, you're Moose Matson until the day you die. That's good. That's good. That's good. Oh, well, one last thing I want to say. Because uh, of my my feelings towards uh, you know watching Hal Needham and all the stunts and everything, I there's a lot of things in my life that I did that were similar to Hal's. Um, but he had the ambition to just keep going and going and going. And I guess I did not. But uh, when I was in the military over in Italy, they were coming through because they were making a movie uh, called uh, In Love and War with uh, Sandra Bullock and Chris O'Donnell uh, being directed by Richard Attenborough. And uh, they were looking for extras for the movie. So everybody on the base went to go and see if they could get in the movie. And I got there, and they were like, "Oh, my boss was like, oh, we already we already went through, and uh, they picked everybody. They just need, uh, you know, some stuntmen." I was like, "Really?" They was like, "Yeah, they need stuntmen, you know, with like martial arts experience." And I was like, "Really?" Boom! So I head back there, and there's uh, me and uh, four other uh, guys, and they're like, "You guys got martial arts experience?" And we're like, "Yes." And so, bingo! I'm a stuntman on the movie In Love and War. Very nice. Now, so did, over, did you, over, now, when you watch the movie now, did, did your scene make the cut? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the reason it made the cut, here we go, here we go. reason it made the cut is uh, because I'm such a big fan of Jackie Chan. And I would, during the 80s, when I was living over in Japan, my friends and I would practice a lot of the, the fight scenes that they would do. Uh, I was pretty good at doing them, and my friend was pretty good at getting hit and falling down. So he did that part. And, uh, but, uh, I had practiced, you know, jumping back in the air and landing on the back of my neck. And, uh, so we're doing the, the fight scenes in the movie 
there's like five Italian guys and five American guys for the Austrians. And uh, my Italian guy, we're going to do a little scene together. And I say, hey, hey, no, do this. Come up with the butt of your rifle like you're going to hit me in the chin. And I'll jump backwards and land on the back of my neck. And then you come in afterwards and stab me in the chest with a bayonet. <laughs> so that was a scene we came up with. And then we're out on the set. This is over in Italy on top of Mount del Grappa. And uh, so the scene comes up and... He does it. I go flying up in the air and land on the back of my neck and he stabs me in the chest. And then the scene's over and they come up to me and be like, they want to do that again, but they want to film you doing it. And I'm like, oh my God. So they go and put makeup on me to look like I got a gash on my face. And uh, the stunt guys uh, come up and they put, the, the professional stunt guys, they come up and they put a, a brace on my back so I won't hurt myself. And I was like, I just did it without the brace. Is that the trick? But, because if you, I mean, if I, I can't imagine like throw, I know like the move you're talking about, like when you get like uppercutted or kicked or whatever and you fly back, you land on like your shoulders and neck and your legs kind of flop over. But what is the right. key to doing it without hurting yourself? I don't know. <laughs> or do you just got to do it when you're young, when you're still nice and limber? And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I did a couple of years ago. Uh, right now, mm, I don't know. I might hurt myself if I do it now. But they, they filmed me doing that scene, uh, so uh, I have a close-up shot of me going down uh, in the film. Now, I, I when you're watching the movie, I couldn't see me, and then I watched it again when I bought the tape, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch this and find me. There I am, and then I was going down quick. But uh, I think they, they cut it a little bit because uh, they, the, the director comes, uh, talks to the stunt guy, and the stunt guy comes to me and says, hey, the director says you're smiling. And I'm like, I'm not smiling. Do it again. Okay. We do it again, and he's like, he says, you're still smiling. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. The stunt guy is looking down at me, and the sun is right above his head. It's shining right in my eyes. I can't see. I'm sort of grimacing in pain. And he's like, no, it looks like you're smiling. So I think they cut my scene a little bit. <laughs> That's still an amazing story, though. I mean, like, uh, you, we probably should open with that story. Like, just, like, mention that, like, as much love and affection you have for Hal Needham as a, as a stuntman, you actually know a little bit wherever you speak since you've, you've dabbled in that world yourself. Well, my daughter keeps saying, what, what's wrong with you, Dad? You, you, you had your foot in your door. Why didn't you go any further? And I was like, well, I talked to the stunt guys. They had done uh, White Squall before this one, and then they came over and did this movie. And I talked to him about being a stuntman, and he was like, oh, you have to qualify to be a, a skydiver, and you have to do this. And I was like, oh, I don't want to skydive. Yeah, I've gone skydiving so. three times, but I did it all when I was like 20 or 19, yeah, I guess 19 and 20, where just my – hormones demanded that I jump off things like I was jumping off quarries I was jumping off bridges I was jumping off I was jumping off anything now at 43 I'm like fuck that like unless like I, my little uh, brother like guilt trips me into it and he's like I'm 18 now let's go skydiving you always promised you would take me I'm like fuck then I probably would, <laughs> would do it but man well, I, I did the, some crazy stuff where I would uh, living in Japan I would had a five-story high-rise and I would climb out my window and sort of wrap a rope around the, the metal grating at my window and sort of hang off and it's five stories up and I'm like, you know what? I could probably go over to that uh, that drain pipe and shimmy all the way down. That's crazy. I probably would have killed myself. But I was hanging out uh, out of the window up there. So I, I, I think I could have had a, a fun time being a stuntman. I probably hurt myself a lot, but 
Absolutely. You'd be held together by scotch tape and <laughs> duct tape. And so, but the thing is, how neat him. He lived to a ripe old age and he seems, I mean, I don't know how much pain he was in when he got up in the morning, but he seemed to have a smile on his face to the bitter end, which I guess is the best we can all hope for. But I just can't thank oh. enough for making the pitch for this episode. This was a topic that was yeah, long no overdue for the podcast. And I, I always appreciate any opportunity to revisit Smoking the Bandit. And I had not had a chance to do the deep dive on that movie so far. So thanks again for coming on the show and shooting the shit about movies with me. Absolutely my pleasure. Anytime, man. Excellent. Well, we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. If you want to talk more, you can always find me on Facebook or Twitter. My personal profile is at Colbrax. Or if you want some video content, you can find my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock. But I think that's all I've got to say for this particular episode. So I just can't thank enough for listening. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.